What's up, world? I got a question for you. What is it that makes coffee so damn good? Maybe it's that caffeine and dopamine hit you get after pounding a pot or two. Or perhaps it's that feeling of connection that you get when you sit down with another person to work on yourselves in the process of recovery. Maybe it's the fact that you can take something so bitter and turn it into something so delicious. Whatever it is, we in the recovery community love our coffee. And why not? Coffee is fuel. Coffee is love. Coffee is life. That's what makes Brainwash Coffee the perfect partner for the Other Side of Hell podcast. Not only is every flavor of Brainwash Coffee mastered and handcrafted by obsessive minds who won't stop until they've gotten it just right, but 50% of all proceeds go back into the recovery community to help those who may still be suffering, which makes Brainwash Coffee a no-brainer. My personal favorite is Ego Ain't Your Amigo, a nice blend of Ethiopian and Guatemalan bean with a hint of citrus, dried fruit, and caramel flavor makes it a delicious blend for any time of day. Right now, you can go to brainwashedcoffeeco.com and use promo code OTHERSIDE for 20% off your coffee purchase. Brainwashed Coffee, clean your being. We at the Other Side of Hell podcast are not therapists, doctors, or counselors. We're just two guys who have been through hell and come out the other side. Please be aware, we may talk about drinking and drugging in detail. Anyone struggling with addiction may find this triggering. Our goal is to share our stories, explore our struggles, and connect with others through our experience. Remember, we are not alone. There is hope, and together we can get better. Hey everybody, what's up? I am Cameron. And I'm Willie. And today we have a very special guest I want to introduce you to, host of the Silver Powered Podcast, as well as biochemist and all-around recovery badass, badass. Jill. Hi, Jill. Jill, welcome hey to the show. Thank J- you for having me. Yeah, it's so good to have you, Jill. Um, I think that you have a very interesting perspective on uh, recovery and an and, and approach to sobriety. And because of that, we definitely wanted to get you on the show um, you have uh, you have that biochemistry background, and because of that, you um, you sort of go through sobriety in a way that uh, is very scientific and logical, and um, and I really appreciate that approach. We definitely like to explore all angles of uh, of sobriety, and we recognize that there's more than one pathway to getting sober, and so um, because of that you are a valuable asset to the community and so we can't thank you enough for being here today yep yep thank you yeah you're very welcome and then just to let everybody know um one thing that i've noticed in following uh and following you online jill is that we don't we don't generally get to hear too much about your story and so today we do have your war story which you were nice enough to share with me in advance um, and, uh, and we're going to share that with everybody. And one of the things that we were able to pull from your war story um, that I felt like would be valuable to discuss here today is basically um, alcohol's effect on mental illness. So um, I know in my own experience, I definitely have uh, you know depression, anxiety issues, and these were things that were exacerbated by my alcohol use. Um, in your story, you also uh, mentioned quite a bit about um, mental illness, anxiety, and some of the effect that alcohol had on that. And so I felt like it was 
um, a good opportunity to explore that topic a little bit because I think that it's fairly common amongst us alcoholics and addicts um, that that suffer with um, any sort of mental health issue that uh, that you know where is the habit between self-medicating or what is the the line between self-medicating and and uh, just trying to you know create some homeostasis with with our alcohol and drug use so on that note Jill can you tell me just a little bit about how alcohol played a role um, in your life with mental illness and and then maybe we can talk a little bit about the science behind that yeah so I have always struggled with depression um, since I was 10 years old and I never really tried any medication for it, um, so I just kind of struggled. And then when I discovered drinking, I discovered that like I could instantly just be happy, and it felt really good. Um, and then I started to notice, I think, some extra depression the longer that I drank, so I would blame it on things like too many margaritas. So I, I determined like tequila was the cause, not the alcohol itself. So I stopped drinking tequila. Um, and then I would just keep going and, um, I developed anxiety, which I have not struggled with before the depression got worse and worse and worse. So yeah, it was just, it's a main part of the story for me. And it's the reason that I ultimately quit because it got really scary. And now that I don't drink, I don't have anxiety and my depression is much more manageable. Yeah, I I really appreciate hearing that. And, and I think that, like I said, I think that there's going to be a lot of people that can identify with that. So can you tell me, because for me, in my own experience, when I was drinking, I think that what what alcohol really allowed me to do was sort of fine tune my depression, um, meaning that. I, I would call to my depression a lot more often as the culprit behind me maybe being absent from family gatherings or, um, or being late to work or not performing well at work. Like I, I wanted so bad to chalk it up to anything other than alcohol because I knew <laughs> that that meant I would have to stop drinking, right? Yeah. And I didn't want that. My, so. my depression was causing me to drink, not my drinking was causing depression. Is that is that what you mean? Well, yeah, and and what I mean is like I'm gonna I'm going to you know call in sick and say that I'm depressed and I can't come in when really I'm hungover and can't come in, you know. But I want to say that the depression is the reason why I'm drinking so much, um, and I think that to some extent that's probably true but having you come on the show and and hearing sort of your background it just makes me wonder like chemically what's what's happening in my brain when when I'm you know adding that alcohol to to the depression the depressive sort of brain I mean can you shed any light on that yeah so alcohol causes a burst in serotonin which makes us feel happy. So technically drinking does make you feel happier because it boosts serotonin levels in the beginning. Um, And it also like dumbs down your brain. So you just generally care less about your problems Mm. because you're distracted. But then the next day it actually decreases your serotonin below baseline 
Um, so below like your normal levels of serotonin. So then you feel extra depressed when you have the hangover and then you need to drink again to bring yourself back up. And it just keeps going and your brain keeps adapting and you need more alcohol to get the same boost. And then you have a bigger crash and you're more depressed. And um, like on the psychological side, we're also telling ourselves like, I'm not going to have more than three drinks or I'm not going to drink today at all. And then we don't do that and we get drunk again and you keep letting yourself down and disappointing yourself and you make yourself even more depressed and you don't believe in yourself anymore. So it's coming in from both sides, like chemically and psychologically, and you just get more and more and more depressed. And drinking to cope, especially, is linked with developing a problem. There have been a lot of studies on that. I think the coolest ones are like 10 year long studies um, where they brought people in with depression and everybody had depression and they would measure um, like their level of depression and how much they drank or whatever and follow up with them a couple times throughout the 10 years. And they found that um, I think it was like 10 to 15% of people who did not drink to cope would eventually go on to develop a problem. But it was over 40% of people who did drink to cope eventually developed a problem. So there's a big connection between like using alcohol to deal and then becoming reliant on it. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, well, and that, and that's just the thing is like, I feel like the, the vicious cycle for me, like what, what I noticed in my own using alcoholism behavior and Willie, you, you tell me if you can identify with this is, you know, eventually I'm, I'm drinking and using to cure the blues that I have because I'm an alcoholic and an addict, right? Like now it's just like, I've accepted the fact on some sort of level that I have this condition, which requires me to, to turn to these, these vices in order to cope. And now it's just like this vicious cycle where it's like, I feel bad because I drink and I'm drinking because I feel bad Yeah, and it just escalates and gets worse. Well, and- I, I always wanted to chalk it up to like you sharing your story a little bit. You know, I wanted to chalk it up to, to who I was as a person. Like, like I can't deal with life because I'm a bad person, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, and then I would um, go through and I would make sure that that thought about myself would match my behavior, you know? And I would go through and have dysfunctional relationships and commit crimes and, and do uh, all these negative self-harm behaviors and stuff like that that would that would equalize my opinion about myself and it's like what you were saying is that opinion about myself came from this promise that I couldn't keep to myself because of what was going on inside of my brain chemically right like I'm chemically dependent upon alcohol and drugs and so I think at some point I'm like, I have to be strong enough to not drink tomorrow, right? Yeah. Moderate, like you're talking about in your story. And I think we can all identify with that as we've crossed that line of, of alcoholism from, from uh, drinking socially to drinking alcoholically. We can identify with that. And then once I cross that line and I try to make the resolution to not drink tomorrow and then not be able to hold up to that, um, the the deep the 
uh, disappointment in self would kick in mm-hmm, again mm-hmm. and again and again and again and again. But the dependence on the alcohol would continue to rise again and again and again. And it would get so unbalanced that I wasn't able to um, to, to get through my day at all right. without numbing that that hatred for self because I kept letting myself down over and over and over again. I just didn't know. I didn't know that there was a chemical problem going on inside me. I thought it was an emotional or uh, psychological problem that was happening. Right. Yeah. Well, and it seems like it's, I mean, it's, it's a combination of everything. Right. But, but I really liked what you were talking about because I know in my own position, like I was, there was just so many things about my life that I wasn't happy with. Right. Like I wasn't happy in my relationships. I wasn't happy with my career. I wasn't happy um, with anything that was happening romantically, you know, and I didn't want to look at alcohol as having a negative impact on any of that stuff. And I wasn't ready to change it. Um, and, and so I felt like, like you were talking about Jill is, is alcohol is the only way for me to cope or at least forget about all these problems. Like, let's not talk, like, I don't know how to take action on these things. I don't know how to change these things with positive affirmative action. And so instead I'm just going to lose myself into this bottle for a minute and feel better for 20, 30 minutes until tomorrow comes. And, and, and in my case, I know that eventually because doing the hard thing is so hard (laughs) that eventually what, what I wanted to do or what I realized I was going to have to do was upgrade, right? Like I've got to find a more effective way to numb out. Like I've got to find, a, a, a different means of disconnecting myself or escapism because it's it's no longer doing the trick and and what I liked about your story is you you definitely um, you know had your own your own journey with all this stuff and where it took you and and um, and the anxiety that began like as a new issue for you which wasn't really anything that you had dealt with before but you were able to sort of identify what was happening with you. And at some point, right, you had decided that you were going to moderate. I just love all these little fixes that we come up with, like these little solutions in order to really not address like the main, <laughs> the main problem. Like I, I want to do all these little things cause I think that's, that's going to work. And it's funny to me. And I feel like I've said this on the show before and, and I want to ask you about it too, but it, it's funny to me because what what is it about alcohol that we're holding on to so much that in your story you had decided that you needed to moderate um, because you didn't want to let go of the idea of not drinking altogether, right? And in my case, like the same thing goes, like I didn't want to like there was there's something so appealing about alcohol and drugs that we're not willing to say i don't want to not do it ever again i just want to learn how to do it properly but we have no idea what that is like or or what that even means and so is it I mean, do you think, do you think, Jill, that it really is just the serotonin that we get from it or, or is it deeper than that? Is there something else about 
the alcohol or or the drug that that is so great that is so grand that that we really just can't let go so this is my whole motivation for um, doing all the research that I do is I want to understand why it's so hard to stop and why when it's clearly destroying our lives do we still pursue it and think it's the only good thing in our lives and it's not just like the chemical boost it's also um, like in my case there was direct evidence like I was miserable all the time I was anxious I hated myself uh, my relationship with my husband was suffering but for those two hours every single day when I had first started drinking, life was good again, and then it would get horrible again. So we do have like direct evidence that it is good. Um, and then our brain, like it's so dependent on it emotionally, like maybe not physically for everybody, but it becomes so dependent on it that we can imagine existing without like the one good thing in our life. Mm. So that's part of the reason that we fight so hard for it. Um, but yeah, I think it's fascinating. And like just the mental clarity that I had when I stopped drinking um, was crazy. Like I can't believe how much I can now like actually understand what's going on around me and what's going on like inside of me. Where before like I was just a zombie who walked around hating myself all day until it was like time to drink. And then I would just hate myself again and repeat, repeat, repeat. Right. But yeah, it's it's a lot of stuff. It's psychological, it's chemical, because um, when you train your brain that alcohol makes you happier, alcohol makes anxiety go away, it stops being able to do these processes itself. So it relies on alcohol to relax you or to make you happy. So when you stop drinking, the brain doesn't think it has to like do those things. So it just doesn't. And that's why you feel more depressed and more anxious. And that shows up as cravings too, because your brain is like, I am overexcited. I need to calm down. Like you need to drink this thing so that I can be calm. So the brain is actually telling you like, please go have some alcohol so we can fix this. Wow. It's not just like a physical um, or like psychological craving. It's it's a chemical thing too. So yeah, it's very, very fascinating what happens to us. I wonder, have you ever, have you ever read a study or have you ever seen, um, anything about, uh, alcoholics in general before finding alcohol? Like, is there, is there anything that says like us alcoholics have, um, lower lev levels of serotonin to begin with? Like, is there something insufficient in our brains to begin with that starts us out? early on looking for something to keep us happy? Yeah, that's a great question. So for some people, yeah, not for everybody. Okay. Um, so for people who get aggressive when they drink, um, that has been linked to serotonin issues. Um, so neurotransmitters that are released and they do what they're supposed to do and then they're recycled or broken down or like saved for, to be used again. And the molecule that moves the neurotransmitter, it's called a um, like a serotonin transporter. Some people have a certain variant that's lower activity or just doesn't work as well. And that is linked to alcohol-induced aggression. So it can be like things with the brain that like wouldn't cause issues normally, but when you drink, you unlock mm. like all of this stuff. And 
alcohol can change the way like things are expressed. So it can make you even worse than you normally would be. And um, like PTSD or eating disorders or other things, they're linked to developing a problem with alcohol too. So yeah, that, that is definitely a real thing. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's really fascinating. Cause I'm like trying to like ask myself, I mean, I can definitely vouch for that statement. I feel like I, I had depression long before, you know, I actually picked up or started using because of it. Like I, you know, was diagnosed with depression somewhere in my twenties and I didn't really have a problem with alcohol until late in my twenties, you know? And, and for me personally, like I, uh, for me it was opiates, right? Like, I mean, alcohol played a role, but like, once, once I threw opiates into the mix, it was game over. And, and I know like from a chemical perspective that opiates are blocking, especially, um, Oxycontin, which is what, you know, I was first introduced to that, that those are blocking the pain receptors, right. In our, in our brain. And that from that point forward, like I just loved that I wasn't thinking about all this stuff that was making me miserable. Like I was actually able to just do nothing. And when I say do nothing, I literally mean do nothing because I, I I wasn't capable, but I was so okay with it. You know, like I was just so fine with it. And, and I think that, um, I, I want to be careful because I want to be sure that, you know, everybody knows that if you have depression, it doesn't mean you're going to be an alcoholic. Right. And if you're alcoholic, it doesn't mean that you're automatically, you know, a depressed person, but I do find that there is such a great correlation and, and, and sort of a high number between, um, you know, alcoholics and mental illness. And so on that note, like when, when we look for solutions then, um, other than, because I think that, I think we're, we, we get into a moment where we start playing a very dangerous game where we are mixing alcohol with medication. Um, and I know that was something that, that I did quite a bit was, you know, I'm, I'm medicated for depression and now I'm drinking on top of it. I mean, <laughs> right. I, I can only yeah. imagine like, the over like my body my brain has no idea what to do right it's like okay wait a minute now what do you want like, what do you want me to do here like <laughs> i you got the pill telling me to do this thing you got the booze telling me to do that thing and it's like dude what what, what are we trying to achieve you know so our poor brains you know but i i wonder do you have any insight as to um to what medication does for for us as uh, as sober individuals uh, who suffer with depression and alcohol's impact on that? Yeah, so if you are, so the main reason that I never took anything for my depression was because it always says on the bottle, like, don't drink. Um, <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, Not I want to drink. <laughs> it's a so big order. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I know most people don't listen to that, but I was like, well, if I can't drink, I'm not going to take this then. Mm-hmm. So I just didn't bother. I was like, I'll just drink. That's fine. Um, but alcohol will reduce um, how effective your medication is, so it'll prevent it from working either like fully or to the extent that it should be. And it will also increase the negative side effects that you experience. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So you could be taking something and think it's like it doesn't work and it's making you feel horrible, like typical symptoms like um, sexual side effects or like dry mouth, stuff like that. But if you took it without alcohol, it could be the thing that actually helps you without the negative side effects. So I think if anyone is um, self-medicating with alcohol and taking antidepressants on top of that, don't just rule out that the antidepressant doesn't work Mm -hmm. because alcohol prevents it from working. So I think that it's a great option because some depression is just chemical and you need you need a bit of help. It's not always a situational thing. Well, and I, I, I appreciate hearing that because I think that you're, we're not giving ourselves a fair shake, right? If we're, exactly. if we're medicating and drinking on top of it, like we're, it's, it's not going to be yeah, effective. Super common with, with us. Like we're not, we're not honest with our therapists and shit either. You know, we go in drinking and they, they, they suggest you like, maybe you need a therapist. And you're like, yeah, sure. I'll go lie to another person. Right. <laughs> like what's, I'll just pay for this, this yeah. person to lie to them. But, <laughs> but I mean, uh, you know, medication can help and, and also therapy, right? Like you mentioned in your story. So how, um, how have you found that, that, that has helped you? Cause you mentioned it. How, how does that like, there's something common with therapy because mm-hmm. we've heard it time and time before and uh we're advocates for therapy and and just working this stuff out but how how has that kind of played a role with your yeah. sobriety yeah so what i like about therapy is um your therapist will help you make a connection that you can't see like we are too close to our own life So we can't connect all of these things, especially if they're highly emotional things. So a therapist can take, like when I first stopped drinking, and still now it's an issue, but the first year it was a big issue. It was just like intense rage that Mm. would like take over my life for days, like make it hard to function. And it's like, why am I feeling this way? Like, what's wrong with me? I never thought I was an angry person. And my therapist helped me connect that to back in my life before I was drinking. So now I at least, like, it didn't make the anger, like, poof, like, disappear. But now I understand, like, why I feel angry and why the anger magically disappeared when I started drinking. So it it helps you just, like, understand yourself where you can't do that alone. Like, it's hard to analyze yourself and ask yourself the right questions and, like, I don't know, bring up things from your past that seem like they wouldn't matter at all. But now all of a sudden they do when you actually like talk about it. So I think therapy is an amazing tool, whether you take medication or not, it's, it's good for everybody. Yeah. How did you, how did you find your therapist? Yeah. So if you Google, um, psychology today, find a therapist, they have a tool. So you type in your zip code and then it brings you to this big page and shows you all the therapists in your area And on the left side of the page, there's a bunch of filters. So you can filter by your health insurance. And then you can also filter by the issue that you want to discuss. Mm. So I filtered by alcohol abuse. Um, Trauma is on there, like all kinds of relevant things. And then you just scroll through and read the bios and see like who you connect with. So they'll, they'll talk about like their perspective and what kinds of issues that they treat. And that's how I found mine. I just connected with her and then 
gave her a shot, but um, sometimes it's not a good fit and you'll know like yeah. right away, like if you're questioning, I don't know if this is a good fit. It's not, you right. just like, you know, find someone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can definitely speak to that fact. And, and I think that maybe that's, that's, uh, that's, and I, I really am glad that to hear you say that because I, I would challenge anybody, um, who is seeking therapy to, to go until you, you find somebody that you click with, because I think that that's the mistake that I've seen people make is, is they, they go to one therapist, that person isn't isn't they're not clicking with that individual and so they just give up on therapy in general and and my experience is you know I've had to go to to several before I found somebody that I click with but I think another thing for me that really helps because I have like me personally I have such a hard time being honest sometimes and so I have to have at least one person in my life that I am 100% completely honest with, you know, and, and that I can, you know, be held accountable to. Um, and so I think, you know, we're, we're lucky enough to have, uh, in, in our worlds, you know, a lot of a number of different people that we're accountable to. And a therapist can just be another, another person that we get to use for that. And I think that for if you're an alcoholic, like I'm an alcoholic, that I need that extra accountability, right? One thing I didn't hear in your story, and maybe maybe we just didn't talk about it, and and um, uh, and, and and I and I mentioned this just because I'm thinking about it in my own story, but um, I did a lot of lying and sneaking and hiding and um, and things like this and. And I know for me that the reason I did those things was because I was ashamed, right? Um, I, I knew that the behavior that I was admitting was shame, and I didn't want to look at that myself, and so I sure as hell didn't want anybody else to point it out for me. Um, and, and in your story, you talk a lot about shame. Um, and, and I know that you had moments in your story and in your drinking career um, where you did feel, including that first drink, where you did feel just that immense amount of shame. Um, did you have any of that other negative behavior? Or I wonder if, uh, if, because another thing you mentioned was not crossing that line that was going to mean you were an alcoholic, right? <laughs> like if you, if you're late for work yeah. or if it affects work, yeah. like that means you're an alcoholic. So I wonder, um, if, if, did you find any of that in your story where, where you were doing any of that behavior or was that a line that meant that you were a true alcoholic and you just never got that far? Yeah. So I did start to miss work. Um, not like for my job, I can just kind of show up like when, when I want, um, we're, we're lucky that way. Like people will come in anytime between like seven and like 10 and it's just, you know, you make your own hours generally. So late isn't exactly the same thing as it would be for other jobs. So I would come in um, like technically late, but it seemed normal. But I had started missing like full days of work mm. towards the very end. And I knew like I would tell myself that day, like this means something really bad. Mm -hmm. Like you have to stop doing this. And um, like I just couldn't stop. And I think I missed... Um, not like every week, but it was starting to build up that I was missing, missing more days because I wasn't sleeping at all. 
because I would force myself to stay awake and hate myself. Mm. So then I would blame it on, well, now I have insomnia. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, right. I'm missing work because of insomnia, not because of my drinking. Um, but the lying and sneaking, I didn't have to do that. And I know that's somewhat unique. Um, like my husband and I, I don't know, we have this like really special relationship that just like clicked like instantly when we met, um, I guess like nine years ago. Um, and he just accepts me for who I am and he never made me feel that I had to like sneak around and drink when he wasn't looking. Like I could just be like, this is, you know, I'm going to drink a bottle and a half of wine, like, and get really sloppy. Like, mm -hmm. and I would just do that every weekend and, and drink every single day. Or like, sometimes I would want to go walk to the liquor store, like at night. And I don't know, he just never made me feel bad. And because he never made me feel like I should be ashamed in front of him, mm -hmm. I just wasn't. So I just, yeah, he saw it all. He saw like the <laughs> worst, like all the sickness and like the, just the worst parts. He saw every single moment. Wow. Yeah, I, uh, I, I really envy that sort of, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think I have that relationship with my wife now and luckily like she has never had to see that part of me. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I appreciate and respect that, that that's how it was, mm -hmm. um, for you. And, and I, I love hearing just how, how different the same thing can be sometimes. Um, and so I know that, you know, I'm alcoholic, you're alcoholic, Willie here is an alcoholic. Um, and our stories are, are so similar in so many ways yet, there's these subtle differences. Um, even though you weren't hiding and sneaking things, you still felt shame. Um, you still felt that same shame that, that I would feel or that Willie felt that, you know, I would immediately decide to get rid of with another drink, with another drink. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, yeah, I mean, shame, shame, I don't know. Like, let me ask you this. Just what what was it about that first drink for you um, that really made you feel that that immense sense of shame? Because you talk about in your story, you it was legal. You had your parents' permission. You had decided beforehand that you were going to do this, and yet you still felt that crazy immense amount of shame. And so I'm curious because I think chemically there's something happening when we feel shame as well is that is that fair to say yeah um so i thought that i was just bad in general like even in the later years of my drinking it wasn't so much like if i had three drinks i was fine if i had four i was bad it was like if you got like buzzed or kind of drunk you were bad like that was um so i grew up witnessing um, some alcohol abuse and I made the association that getting drunk means that you are bad not mm. that getting drunk is bad it means you're a bad person so I wasn't expecting to get a buzz from a small glass of wine 
And I got that buzz and it happened so fast. And I was like, oh my God, I'm bad. Mm. And that was the thought. And that's why I felt so ashamed. And like, I lectured my brother, he was there with me. And I was like, don't ever drink, like promise me. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, promise me you'll never do this. And yeah, and it was such a horrible feeling just from one little drink, but it wasn't the actual like amount. It was the buzz and like getting drunk means that you're bad that's the association that I always had and I could never seem to not get drunk that was my problem I didn't want to get drunk I always wanted just like a little buzz on and like enjoy my night but I could never seem to not get drunk it was like always an accident and once I got drunk it was because I was bad, because I was a loser, because there was something wrong with me, um, and, and all these things that I would tell myself. And I would just repeat it like every day, basically, um, for years. And I kept telling myself, um, like, you're bad, you're a loser, there's something wrong with you, you're the worst. And it, those thoughts like kept getting worse and worse and worse mm. the longer time went on. Yeah, I can definitely relate with that. Like internalize, internalizing my ba- behavior as who I am. Yeah. You know, for sure. Messed me up for a long time. So. Yeah. And I, I, I think that it's interesting because I, what I heard you say was the minute that you felt that chemical change, like that mind altering state of mind where it was like, you no longer were, were, Jill, right? Like you're now this like sort of Jill alter ego who's, who's not of herself. You feel bad, you know? And I think that the point we get to is like, we want that mind altering, you know, like we don't like to be us anymore. We don't like being who we are on the inside. We don't like, we don't feel comfortable in our own skin. So it's like, then we go seeking, then we go seeking that mind altering substance and, and that mood change. And, and, uh, I, I just think it's fascinating that at first, what, what will have us cowering in shame is eventually the the behavior that we seek. Um, and, and for me, like, I know it's funny and, and maybe you can shed some light (laughs) into this and maybe not Jill. It's something I want to talk about either way. Right. But like, with food specifically for me, because we talk a lot about food on this show because, um, because we feel like in a way, well, I'll just speak for myself, even though I know Willie feels the same way. Um, I feel like in a way that that's, that's my struggle now, right? Like that's my disease and I'm looking for, um, escape in food and, and it, it seems to be, um, a lot trickier to navigate this space when it comes to food. And we know that food has a similar effect as alcohol as far as releasing serotonin um, and things like this. Um, and I, I know that, by the way, everybody, by listening to Jill's podcast, so please um, feel free. She has a lot of great information there. Um, but, um, but beyond that, what, what I find fascinating sometimes is I like good food. I like quality food um, and I can eat quality food without feeling bad and I can eat plenty of it without feeling bad because my body needs that nutrition. Um, it tastes great. I don't feel bad. It's fine. 
but there is a part of me that craves the food that is going to bring with it a side of shame, right? Like I want the garbage food because I feel like sometimes there is a part of me that wants the shame that comes with it or wants the, the reason to, to dive further into it. I don't know. Like, and, and I, I feel like I talk about that now because I've always found it somewhat fascinating that this is how my mind works. Like, I don't want the good food. I want the shitty food that's going to make me feel like shit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you know what I mean, Jill? I, can you identify with that at all? Yeah, so I used food before. So from I started dieting when I was 13, um, and every time I would go on a diet, I would gain a little bit of weight. I was never overweight. Um, like this is the size that I graduated high school at. But then when I was 18, I tried that drink, and I didn't drink again. But that's when the problem with food became worse was when I got to college. So then I started getting really obsessive and I wanted to be like as thin as possible. Mm. I thought that was like my life's dream. And because I was restricting and obsessing, I would binge. I would plan it actually for every Saturday morning when everyone in my family was gone, like at the gym or at work or whatever, I would binge same times every single week. And then I would hate myself for it. And then it would restart like all of those crazy behaviors again. Mm -hmm. um, but the binge, like very temporary, it made me feel so good. And then I discovered alcohol when I was 22. And I could feel better for longer than food. Mm. So food makes you feel good while you're eating the food. And then as soon as it's gone, you feel horrible about yourself. But alcohol you can get maybe like two or three good hours before you have to hate yourself. And once I found alcohol, that was like the thing I was looking for was that good feeling that didn't go away immediately mm. and finding alcohol. And like, I met my husband basically at the same time I started drinking and I was like, okay, I don't want to do these food behaviors anymore. So I started going to therapy and getting help. And part of that was because I didn't need to do the thing with food anymore because I could do it with alcohol and it worked better. Yeah. So we stopped drinking. Now we don't have like the instant gratification, instant happiness anymore. And healthy food's not going to do that. Healthy food's going to make you feel better like tonight and tomorrow, but we don't care about that. We care about like right now right, and yeah. like Nutella or French fries or something that's going to do it right now. And that's a hard thing to get out of because as you know, people that abuse alcohol, that's what we're used to is mm -hmm. instant happiness, like instantly feeling better about our problems and not having to work at anything. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've struggled a bit with sugar since getting sober Yeah. because of that same thing. Like it makes me feel happy and like dangerous and, and it's silly. And then you feel like, Oh, I shouldn't have done that and all yeah. this stuff. And I think the other part of it too, is feeling like maybe you deserve bad things right. and you don't deserve to like hit your fitness goals or, or feel good about your body and self-sabotage too. So I think it's coming from either like instant gratification, pleasure seeking, or like I deserve this feeling. 
Yeah, I, you know, as you were talking, and I was thinking a lot about the food because that's what I think about. Period, um, but also just that food, food-like behavior, and and to to sort of harken back to our conversation from before, it's like people would probably have that same thought or notion that I'm having today when we talk about alcohol with food. People, you know, like I'm sitting here on one hand, I'm saying, why is it that we're so inclined to continue to drink even though like we see the negative impact that it has? Why is it that um, you know, we go through this process of moderating and trying so desperately to hold on to it when we see the negative impact we have. I dare say that there are people who will see what food does to us and think the same thing, right? And, and the reason is the same. Like, we're trying to hold on to that one good thing, right? Like, and, and there's been, like... So I've been a member of uh, alcohol or uh, Overeaters Anonymous, right? And in Overeaters Anonymous, there's there's red foods, green foods, and and things that you can't eat, and things that you know you probably shouldn't eat, and then you have to uh, you you go through this process of um, telling somebody that you can be accountable to, like what you're going to eat, and and uh, and I suck at that program like i'm great at at alcoholics anonymous right but i suck at that program because i don't like the idea that i can't have this stuff ever again right so it's 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 crazy to me that again like here i am you know this many years down the road alcohol free but i still have this notion that like i still need these things I still need this one thing, right? And so in a way, like for me personally, um, I feel like I want to quickly discredit any sort of recovery I have because I still struggle with food. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I I, I just, I, I think that it's sort of all the same thing. And I appreciate this conversation because it's sort of enlightened me to the idea of like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's all the same. It's all, it all sort of has the same impact upstairs, maybe not chemically, but spiritually and emotionally and mentally. Like, I think that we're dealing with it in the same way. Um, and I know we, you know, we started this conversation talking about mental illness. And I think that it's a good time to sort of bring it back around to that because what happens for me is I engage in this negative behavior and then I start hating on my circumstances and then I start questioning things and then, you know, I get into this depressive funk and then I want to look for the solution in food and yada, yada, yada. And so on the cycle goes. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think that addiction in general and mental illness is such a, a, a tricky topic and I respect and commend anybody who has any extra insight into that because I feel like I need it. Um, so I'm really glad that you're here. I want to let everybody um, listen to your story. We've we've talked about it quite a bit here, and I really think that it's um, a fascinating um, departure, I'll say, from something that we might normally hear on this show. 
And so I really appreciate you sharing it with us. And we're going to go ahead and play it for our audience now. So without further ado, here is Jill's War Story. Hi, I'm Jill. I am 18 months sober. Um, So my story started late in life. I didn't start drinking until after college when I was 22. I had my very first drink at 18 um, on a cruise. So we were cruising internationally where the drinking age was 18. So it was legal. And I also had my parents' permission. So I was all set. I got a glass of wine. And I remember I had the most intense feeling of shame ever. I thought that I was such a bad person for having a drink and getting a little buzz. And I didn't drink for four more years after that. So the reason that I did start to drink is because when I went to graduate school, everybody drank except for me. The professors used to have alcohol like out on their desks and we would have parties with the professors in the school where everybody would drink all of the students used to go to bars for dinner after work and I felt left out I felt weird I was bullied a lot growing up so I never really had that many friends and I felt a strong desire to fit in and for them to like me so I just started ordering what one of my friends would order because I didn't know what to get. And it took a couple times, but the first time that I got like a real buzz on, I was like, okay, (laughs) I understand now. I understand why people do this all the time. And then I was just done. I had no understanding that when you drink, you don't immediately feel all of the effects of your drink. So I would drink and because I wasn't immediately drunk, I thought I was okay to have more. So I was just always messing up, always drinking way too much. I never had a say in how much I drank. If people handed me shots, I would drink them, no question. So I started getting sick. I got sick on a date, on a first date. It was very embarrassing. Whenever I would get sick from drinking, it was very rare that I was at home or near a bathroom. I was always sick in a public place. And the first time I ever got sick from drinking was at a bar and I brought this new guy I was dating and people just kept handing me shots. So I was like drinking them. I didn't understand. And we were walking back to his car and I just threw up, like unloaded in the parking garage behind his car for a really long time. And he forgave me. Um, We went out a couple more times actually, but it didn't work out. Uh, Shockingly, he wanted to see me again. But that was the general way my drinking went. I would drink until it was bedtime or until the alcohol ran out. And if I was drinking socially, I would usually drink way more and faster. And those were the times that I got really sick or very hungover. I was also very prone to blacking out 
So I'd black out all the time. I didn't take care of my own safety as a woman. I would just like go places and be a drunk girl all by herself trying to get home. I drove a lot, which caused a lot of shame for me. And I just couldn't imagine not drinking ever again. I couldn't imagine it. I thought that if I didn't drink, life was going to be boring and sad forever, that it wouldn't be worth living. So that got me into trying to moderate. So I started trying to moderate two years into my drinking. I became a daily drinker one year in. And by the second year, my tolerance had doubled and I was drinking a lot. And that's when I noticed maybe this isn't so great. So I thought I would just moderate and, you know, that would be fine. And I never succeeded, ever. <laughs> um, I tried so many things. I would wear rubber bands on my wrist. That signified the number of drinks that I could have. I got my poor husband into it. I had him pour my drinks for me. But I always talked him into letting me have more. <laughs> Nothing worked. I downloaded apps. I had a notebook. I researched it online all the time, and I could not find a way to moderate. But I never lost hope. I knew one day I would figure it out. And if I just practiced enough, it would become natural. So as a daily drinker, I was getting really drunk multiple times a week. And I would have a massive hangover and wake up, oh, I'm never drinking again. And then the hangover starts to go away around lunchtime. And by 3 p.m., I'm convincing myself, not that it's okay to drink, but that I should drink. And the reason for that is because I never wanted to be sober. I wanted to moderate. So if I don't drink, that's not helping me towards my goal. So I was telling myself that I should practice starting and stopping. And that's why I should drink every day. <laughs> um, so I kept going like that with no success, but I didn't give up hope. And maybe five years into my drinking and three years into trying to moderate, my mental health started to get really bad. And I had always struggled with depression, but it started getting a lot worse. And I just blamed it on tequila. Like I just can't drink tequila. It makes me depressed. So I stopped drinking tequila. And then I was still depressed, but I thought it was fine. And then I developed anxiety, which is something that I've never struggled with. And I had the same routine basically every day for the last two years of my drinking. I would drink, I'd go to sleep, I'd jolt awake when the alcohol started to wear off at like 3 a.m. And uh, the anxiety would hit me and the room would like zoom out. I felt really far away from everything else and it freaked me out. And then I would start to think, you're a bad person. You're a loser. Why can't you control yourself? You're the worst. Why are you doing this to your husband? All of that stuff. And that was something that I did like three or four nights per week. And I would stay up from whenever I jolted awake till like 6 a.m. And then I would allow myself to go back to sleep. 
so I was just very sleep deprived by the end of it. And eventually my depression started to become suicidal thoughts. So all of those times that I would think you're bad, you're a loser, I escalated it. So I'm struggling with anxiety, the room is zoomed out. And now I'm telling myself just the worst things that you could ever tell yourself. And, and they were scary things. And I did that for so many months, the same routine. And I would wake up in the morning after the worst nights of my drinking, and I would be putting on my makeup for work. And I would literally sit there and just look at myself and repeat, I hate you, like over and over and over again. And I would make myself cry. And then 3 p.m., I'm like, oh, you, you should drink because you want to moderate and you got to practice. And the suicidal thoughts started to get really bad. And I started thinking a lot about my husband and I shouldn't do this to him and I should just, you know, set him free. And that scared me. And my husband used to stay up with me while I was struggling with all of this. So he wasn't sleeping either. And there was one night, it was um, a Saturday night. So I started drinking early in the day and nothing special about that day. I just got super drunk like every Saturday and I was up all night. And at 5.30 a.m., my husband and I were watching the sun come up. And I looked at him and I said, I can't drink for 90 days. And I don't know why I picked 90. I thought it was like a magical amount of time. And I had never even tried or bothered to do a month. I had friends that would ask if I could do a month with them and support them. And I would say no, because I needed to practice starting and stopping and having time off wouldn't help. So I thought if I can do 90 days, I will have a nice reset and I won't over drink anymore. And I will have control magically by the end of it. And I thought like, this is good. I'm going to moderate. And I did it and it sucked. I was so focused on moderating. I missed all the benefits. I was such a cranky, miserable person. <laughs> and then by day like 60 something, I realized that day 91 was my 29th birthday. And I thought it was fate. I thought the universe sent me a sign, like it's your birthday on the day you're allowed to drink again. So that means you're going to moderate, like you're cured. You're never going to mess up again. And I really truly believed it. And I drank on my birthday and I got super drunk, but it wasn't my fault, of course. And then after that, I actually moderated for the first time ever in my life, I moderated for two months. I had two glasses of wine on Saturday night out with my husband. I didn't even want a third. And the other six days that I would normally drink, I didn't even want to. So it wasn't like I was resisting anything. And that just further convinced me that I was cured. I'm going to moderate. I'm a normal drinker. And then we went on a cruise and we had the drink package. So 
the plan was to drink on Saturdays and then special occasions. And vacation is a special occasion. So I thought I'm going to go on vacation, enjoy it, and then come home and moderate. And I got so drunk on that vacation. <laughs> I embarrassed myself so many times. It was awful. I spent all the mornings hungover. I climbed Mount Vesuvius in Italy, massive hangover, extreme nausea. <laughs> and I got myself all the way up the mountain. And that was the one thing that I really wanted to do on that trip. I ruined it. And by the time I got home a week or so later, I couldn't moderate and I couldn't skip any days. So I was back to drinking every single day, like right before I challenged myself to 90 days. And the anxiety came back immediately. The suicidal thoughts came back immediately. And I started suffering again, awake all night long, hating myself. I started having to miss work because I actually wasn't sleeping at all. And that was a big problem for me. I always said, I can't miss work. That means that, you know, I'm a alcoholic. And I would always threaten myself with that. Like, if you do this or you can't do this, that means that you're an alcoholic. So I always use that threat. And I suffered and suffered and suffered. And I don't even think I was trying to get back to moderation. I was trying to just like survive it. And one day in November, 2019, it was the 12 year anniversary of a traumatic event that I experienced. And on the 11 year, I got super drunk, stayed up all night by myself, just like massively drunk. So I thought that I would plan this day so that I wouldn't end the night like crying and sad. And my plan was that we should go to brunch and start drinking at 11 a.m. That was the plan. So we did that. And then we walked home and I bought a bottle of wine on the way home. And then my husband decided to take a nap. And that is where everything went wrong. So he's taking a nap and I'm sitting on the couch by myself. I basically chugged the whole bottle in like under two hours. At that point in my drinking, I wasn't even getting the buzz anymore, which was what I always wanted. I didn't want the drunk. I wanted the buzz. I was skipping the buzz and going right to drunk. And I started chugging bottles of wine and I didn't even like, no, why? I would drink an entire bottle in under two hours. And I'd see the end of the bottle and be like, how did I even do that? Why did I do that? So I chugged a bottle of wine after having three glasses of wine at brunch. So by the time my husband woke up, I was crazy drunk. And I blamed him for it. It was totally his fault because he took a nap and he left me. And then we went to dinner to drink more and I started feeling really sick and that stopped me from drinking. Luckily I didn't get sick. And I came home, passed out like usual, jolted awake at midnight. So it was, it was getting earlier and earlier. And I started in with the anxiety, the room zoomed out. 
I started thinking um, suicidal thoughts and setting my husband free and just like what a loser I am overall. And I did that till again, 530. And same situation as the 90 days, I was sitting on the couch with my husband who had been up all night with me. And I said, I can never drink again. And I felt so much peace when I said that. And in that moment, I, I just recognized that even if I take 10, 15, 20 years off, I'm going to go back and drink the exact same way no matter what. Maybe it won't be immediate, but it will go back to normal. That's normal drinking for me. And I accepted that drinking means that I will feel suicidal and have massive anxiety. And conveniently, during the 90 days, I didn't struggle with either. So I had a lot of acceptance at 5.30 in the morning, and I quit drinking forever. And I did it. I never went back um, because I know that the alternative for me is suicidal thoughts and risking my life, it has really prevented a lot of cravings or triggers. Like when something bad happens and I get upset, I don't think about going to get drunk. I've removed it as an option for myself because of that acceptance and because I know exactly what it means if I go back to drinking. Um, So today, I got a new job, which I actually work hard at. I don't do the bare minimum anymore. I'm working very hard at my job. I am hoping to get a promotion next month that I have been wanting for a very long time but never deserved. Um, My marriage is really good. It's so much better than it was before. We actually have a savings account with money in it. (laughs) I treat myself better. I respect myself. And because of that, I, I lost some of the extra weight that I was carrying around from drinking and eating mozzarella sticks to cure myself the next day. Um, and I'm just happy overall. I realized it six months in, so it wasn't immediate, but I was walking by a mirror And normally I would say, oh my God, your arms are so fat. (laughs) Look how ugly you are. And I walked by the mirror and I was like, hmm, looking good. And then I just stopped like in shock. Nothing bad followed it. And since then, so it's been a year. So, cause now I'm a year and a half and I just have consistently liked myself. I don't tell myself I'm a loser anymore or that I should set my husband free or anything. And it's nice to not feel that way about myself. It's nice to not, like, I hated myself so much when I was drinking. It's nice to be free of that. And I don't struggle with anxiety in any way at all. It completely went away on day two. Same with the suicidal thoughts. Um, So what I've done to help myself is first I did nothing because I'm always very stubborn and I like to do everything myself and be self-sufficient. But once quarantine started, I was about four months sober 
And since I transitioned to working from home, I thought I should do therapy. This is a great opportunity. So I started doing therapy, which I'm still working with the same therapist now. And around eight months in, I discovered the amazing sober community that exists online. And I made so many friends, like true friends. I lost friends in sobriety. I stopped getting invited to things, which I understand because I wouldn't invite a sober person either. But I have true friends now. And even though it's not easy, and I still think it would be easier if I could just be like everybody else and fit in and it would help everyone like me. It's not worth the alternative, which is just pure suffering and risking my life. So when I stopped drinking, I wanted to understand why this happened to me. Am I actually a bad person and a loser? And I work as a biochemist, so I'm very comfortable reading the research and I know where to find it. And I started looking into addiction science and why this happens. And I researched it for eight months. And then I woke up one day and I thought, I need to share this. I need to tell people about this. It's helped me feel that it's not my fault and there's nothing wrong with me. And it's helped me relieve the shame from all the embarrassing things that I did. So that same day, I launched my podcast, which is called Sober Powered, and it's been almost a year, and it makes me very happy to do the podcast and do this work, and I'm also on Instagram, also Sober Powered, so I'm easy to find. All right, well, there yeah. it is, Jill. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, it's a bit weird watching yourself, especially with such personal stuff but thank you guys for sharing thanks for sharing it yeah i got i got a ton out of it i i i appreciate how hard you worked to get to like drinking (laughs) it did not it did not come natural to me and a lot of people don't know this but i can relate with that because uh i got sick a lot early on in my experimentation stages of, of drinking and using and I wanted to be a part of so badly that I was willing to put myself through that, you know. And so, um, you know, I, I got that out of it. I could relate to that for sure. And I could relate to the amount of getting sick, you know, the the amount of alcohol-induced sickness through the inability to absolutely not moderate whatsoever. If it was put in front of me, I drank it all, every time. And, um, it didn't matter how many times you put it in front of me. It didn't matter how many times I went into the situation saying, I'm going to go ahead and just take it easy tonight. Right. (laughs) You know? And then as, as your, as your story goes on, I think, man, she must've had a lot of headaches because wine, wine (laughs) gave me the worst (laughs) headaches. Yeah. I don't, I don't know, but, um, you know, your story was great and I, and I love your transparency through it. Uh, especially talking through, you know, what your husband must have been going through and just his support, you know, my, my hat is off to that guy for sure. And I'm, I'm really grateful that you had him through that. Cause who knows where you would be without him? Obviously you, you, you make that very clear that his support kind of helped bring you about, but you know, thank you for sharing your story. I got a ton out of it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'll tell him, uh, he he likes the compliments. 
So, thanks. Good. As he should. Yeah, as he should. And I think that that's an important thing to, to remember and think about is, is those people that kind of go through that process with us and, and, uh, and the things that we put them through. And, and in a way, like, and that's why they call it a family disease, right? Like everybody's sort of affected by it. And, and, uh, and um, yeah, so I, I got to say, you know, my hat's off to that dude too. And, and I really appreciate that about your Instagram and some of the things that you post is, is you're very open about your relationship and the things that you guys go through. And, and, uh, and I, I think that that's great. One, one thing that I really liked about your story and, and that's, I think a little bit different than what we hear. And I, and I, and I think it's worth exploring too, just a little bit of the differences between your journey and say my journey when it comes to you quitting through um, just a very sort of rational and biological approach versus, you know, a 12 step program like, like I have, or like Willie has. And, and one of the things that I really liked about your story is you went through this process of saying, no, I, I quit forever. Like Mm -hmm. you, you had, you know, this moment where you said, I'm going to quit for 90 days. And, and, did uh, it. and you did it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then you had the birthday drum <laughs> and then, but then you were able to moderate. So I can only imagine like what that must've felt for you because it's like, Oh, success. Here I am. I have, I have arrived. Yeah, exactly. You did it. Um, See? and, and you knew it could be done and you were so determined to do that, 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 uh, that I, I appreciate that. But, but when you, when you talked about quitting forever for me, um, that was such a huge, a huge thing that I, I, it was such a huge pill to swallow, right? Like I just, I couldn't fathom it. That's how lost I was. I couldn't, I couldn't fathom the idea of quitting forever, which is why in a 12 step program, you know, we quit one day at a time. Um, and I'm sure that that's something you've, you've heard just being in this silver community, Um, and that, that's what I needed. You know, I needed to just look at it one day at a time. Like the, the beautiful thing is now like this far down the road, I'm able to look at it and say, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm done forever. Right. Um, but it it definitely wasn't like that at first. And so I commend you that you were able to say and put those pieces together too, right? Like if I drink, this happens, like if I go back to drinking, whether it's 20 years, yeah. whether it's tomorrow, like it will lead me to this place where I'm suicidal. I have these thoughts. I'm thinking about, you know, setting my husband free and that's not the person I want to be. And you were able to, to rationalize that to a point where you could say, I quit forever and it's okay. And I think that that, that is the beautiful part about your story that's that's somewhat different than we usually see so i commend you for that for sure Mm -hmm. yeah thanks for sharing it yeah thanks i think um like when i did the 90 days i didn't say forever i said 90 days and i know a lot of people will do something like that and then they'll feel so good that they extend it forever um but the problem with that for me is that keeping the hope of being able to drink normally someday alive prevented me from actually being sober. Um, like I was a dry drunk. I was cranky Mm, and like I would blow up over the smallest things. I was very unhappy. Like I wasn't drinking, but everything else was the same. 
and I could never like actually be free. Um, like I got this, um, tattoo when I finally like accepted that I'll never drink another way. Like I really was free to actually like be sober and enjoy it, but keeping the hope of drinking alive, um, that wasn't going to work for me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I don't, I don't see ever becoming a normal drinker, uh, or anything like that ever. The evidence to alcoholic in me is, is overwhelming. <laughs> and the solution seems to be on this side of the table. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, something came up, you know, and I'd like to ask about it before we wrap out the show, because, um, you know, we, we, t- we talked a lot about serotonin and different chemicals and, and the way that it's affecting us. And, and it dawned on me that there may be some listeners and I don't myself don't quite understand fully the the importance of serotonin or what it does or, or any of those things. So can we just before we wrap it out, can we touch on what serotonin is and a little bit of like, I don't, I don't know how to ask scientific questions, but <laughs> what what is serotonin? Yeah, serotonin is complicated because it does so many things. Like other neurotransmitters, like their purpose is um, to send a message. So like the brain is filled with neurons, like little brain cells, and they send messages to each other, and that's how we move our body. That's how we feel anxiety or feel happiness, um, aggression, things like that. But serotonin plays a role in like a lot of different things, and you can see that if you take an SSRI, because that affects serotonin levels. So if you look at all the negative side effects that you can have, like the sexual ones and um, like dry mouth and all these different things, serotonin affects a lot of different systems in the body. So it has a big role in our digestive system too, not just on mood related things. Um, So like if you consume something that your body considers toxic, um, like too much alcohol, maybe, or just like bad, um, like take out your stomach will release a burst of serotonin to get rid of it. And the serotonin tells your body like this either has to be thrown up or it has to be pushed very quickly through um, the whole digestive system and get rid of it before it can kill us. So that is serotonin's role, like for your digestion, but it does a lot of things. And it's linked to like low levels are linked to depression, which we all know also linked to aggression. So serotonin is very important. And that's why, like, if you're messing up your brain with a ton of alcohol, that's like boosting it. And then it's like really destroying your serotonin levels. You'll have a lot of emotional issues and, um, like eventually you might feel suicidal, which is what I experienced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I appreciate that explanation. I think that it's important. Um, and I appreciate you bringing that up, Willie, because, you know, I think we go through this, especially at this stage of the game where we as alcoholics have probably flirted with some of this stuff as far as investigating serotonin and cortisol and, and things that our body does. And, and I think it's not fair for us to assume that everybody knows exactly what that is. And so yeah. this is a great opportunity since we have you here to give us a little bit more information on that. Um, and so I, I appreciate that. Um, when I, when I think about 
your story because one thing that I just heard you say was you were talking about the 90 days and the difference between the 90 days and where you're at now and how you were a dry drunk and you were angry and, um, and um, just uh, an emotional mess, which is sort of what we are in early sobriety, especially when we feel like we're doing it, quote unquote, against our will in a way. Um, it really sort of, I feel like there's like two things that come to mind as far as um, really having a healthy and quality sobriety. Um, and to me, those two things are like surrender and acceptance. So like in your story, like when you, you, you got your beautiful tattoo, the moment that you accepted that like sobriety is your new way of life and that you, you love it. Right. Um, and, and I think that for me, like when I finally surrendered and just decided like, okay, it's just not an option for me. Like, and like, like you said, you know, I have all this evidence, right. That says this is what happens every time that I do this. And I'm, I'm a fool if I think that it's ever going to be anything different because every time I try, it just doesn't work out. Um, and so I surrendered and then I had that level of acceptance with it. And from that point forward, everything just seemed to be like just so much more calm. And so you talk in your story about how the anxiety went away, like day two. And it's like, yeah, that makes sense. Like we reached that level of acceptance and then boom. Right. Do you think that's what was happening there? Or do you think that there's some chem like chemically that there's some things happening there as well when we're when we're ceasing the alcohol um, and we're no longer, you know, putting that toxic stuff into our system? Is there is there some of that that's playing a role as well? So for me, I had alcohol induced anxiety. So some people can have um, alcohol induced depression anxiety or psychosis and it's a condition that will only occur if you drink so like for people who have alcohol induced psychosis if they never drink again they won't experience psychosis so for me my anxiety went away because it wasn't actually real anxiety mm. um it was even though it felt real and like it kept me up for hours and hours to made me feel like completely out of control, it actually wasn't like me. It wasn't my brain's natural state. But most people do suffer from anxiety and they will experience extra anxiety when they stop. So they may feel that peace feeling too, which helps them get through it. But most people experience extra. And that's because the brain doesn't know that it's supposed to like do anything. It doesn't know it's supposed to calm itself down because alcohol always does that. And the brain mm. only tries to speed itself up so that we don't like fall into a coma and die. So the brain is only like speeding us up. It's never calming us down. So that's why when you remove the alcohol, now you're just like overexcited. And that's why people will feel extra anxiety in the beginning but I think the difference is, um, and same with depression, like you may feel extra depression in the beginning, but if you accept that you just, you know, can't drink moderately, 
you have like the courage to get through it. Mm. And it's a different thing. Like, even though you're struggling with extra depression or like, for me, I had extra shame. Like I was like, you're, you're a loser. You're a failure. You're a Mm -hmm. bad person because you can't drink moderately. Like you're weak. And I was feeling all of that with no relief, but I thought I was doing the right thing. Mm. So that allowed me to get through it. Mm. But anxiety is, I think it's the main reason or one of the very top reasons that people will relapse in the beginning because they just can't handle all that extra anxiety that they used to drink to cope with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I, the, the, we, we have to know that it, there's, there's better days ahead, right. And, mm-hmm. and that we're doing it for a reason and that, uh, that chemically our bodies are not just getting, they're, they're not going to just change overnight. And we've been poisoning ourselves for however long, like, of course, we're going to go through a process where chemically things are, are happening different. And I'm grateful, you know, I went to a treatment facility and I'm just so grateful that I was in a place that could explain to me like, Hey man, this is, this is how it's going. This is, this is what's going to happen. This is what's happening now. And of course you're going to feel crazy because you are like, you have these emotions and the way that you've dealt with these emotions before is by drowning them in alcohol and now you just have to feel them. So you're going to be a little crazy for a minute. And that's okay. Yeah. And that's okay. And also we're not going to let you leave. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so great. Well, Willie, do you have have anything else you want to ask? No, I appreciate you coming on and explaining all this stuff. I, I think it's something that needed to be talked about. I think that... Um, you know, uh, a biological and chemical aspect is so important in the, in the movement is alongside a spiritual and emotional part. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it takes all, all sides of this thing for me to totally understand what's going on with me and to combat it because I am an alcoholic and I, I, you know, have this tendency to want to burn my life to the ground for no apparent reason. And so the more information I have about that when it comes to cravings and, and uh, disconnecting and, and different levels of chemicals in my brain, you know, feeling depressed or anxiety or any of that stuff, the more information I have about knowing that that's going to pass, that it's normal, that it's fine. I don't need to destroy my life over it. I don't need to go back to what doesn't work. All that stuff is beneficial to me. And so my hope is that it's beneficial to the listeners and the viewers as it seems it is. So thank you so much for coming on you know i got a lot out of it it's been fun yeah i listened a lot today so thank you for that yeah thank you guys um and i will leave you with one piece of information that um like on the emotional side our emotions do get worse before they get better Mm. um people get more reactive and explosive in early sobriety and that's another thing that makes you want to drink because you have emotions that you couldn't deal with and now they're even more intense. So everything that people feel in the beginning is real and there's an explanation for it. It's not just that we're crazy or bad or that we're failures. Um, it is actually real. And if, and that's what comforted me, knowing that it wasn't like who I am. It was just a normal experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not only that we're experiencing those things, but they are extra intense 
just for the moment, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like that's actually, that's, that's great. Um, that's all the information I need in those early days for sure. You know, and even now it's good to know, it's good to be able to have that information so I can know that that's maybe what's happening inside of me. And so I can share it with somebody that may be struggling with it now. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. I just want to make it a point to say, um, Jill has an amazing podcast. If you have not checked it out, please check out silver powered podcast. You will not regret it. Um, she has information like this available for you. Um, every, is it every week, Jill, how often are you putting out a show? Yeah, it's every week. Um, sometimes <laughs> recently, uh, I was working on it on Thursday for it to come out on Friday. Some some weeks it's hard, but yeah. as I'm sure you guys know, but yeah, weekly. Yeah, I think I I, I heard that in your voice when you're like, yeah, it's every week. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we know the feeling, but we do appreciate it. I, I think that uh, it's it's important to to get that information out there, and I know that. Um, one thing that you and I have discussed is how much value you get from doing your show and how much value we get from doing our show. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes that that's, that's what makes it worth it. Um, so thank you again, Jill. Um, I, I, I can't thank you enough. We would love to have you back. I feel like I could talk to you for, for hours and hours. And so, um, if you're open to it, we'd love to have you back one day. And, and, uh, with that, let's get out of here. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys. And anytime, just let me know. Awesome. 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 Well, Willie, appreciate you being here, my man. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, Jordan. Jordan. Good old Jordan. Rylan. Rylan. You guys are the best. Rylan sits over there and pushes the button for us. So Yeah, but he looks good doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and with that, guys, remember that you are worth the work. We will see you on the other side. The Other Side of Hell is a do-it-yourself podcast. For more information, recovery resources, and contact info, check out our website at theothersideofhellpodcast.com. You can help us spread our message by liking and subscribing, giving us a follow, or a five-star rating.